section eighteen of edward the black prince by louise creighton this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter fifteen english politics part two the first great statute directed against the interference of the pope was the statute against provisors passed in thirteen fifty one the pope was in the habit of making provisions for vacant benefices by appointing to them men of his own choice and it was against this custom that the statute was directed it naturally seemed very unjust to englishmen that english benefices should be given away to cardinals and other members of the papal court who drew the revenues from their benefices without ever coming near them but we must remember that at this time great benefices were not bestowed upon men as rewards for spiritual eminence they were the prizes which were given to great statesmen to courtiers and royal favourites the ecclesiastics appointed by the king of england had no more intention of residing on their benefices than the ecclesiastics appointed by the pope the pope only claimed the right to reward his servants in the same way as the king did this arrangement by which pope and king alike used the church revenues for their own purposes was too convenient for edward the third to make him really eager for any reformation the statute of provisors might forbid papal provisions but it was never strictly kept nor did the statute which followed it called from its first word in the original latin the statute of primunire prove more successful this statute forbade any appeals being made from the king's courts to the papal court and forbade the introduction of papal bulls into england without royal permission the great interest of these statutes lies in the fact that they express the growing hostility aroused in the laity by the ambition and wealth of the clergy the writings of the times are filled with complaints of the abuses among the clergy langland tells us in a fine passage in the vision of piers ploughman the miserable pass that religion had come to in those days and now was religion a rider a roamer by streets a leader of love days and a land buyer a pricker on a palfrey from manor to manor and heap of hounds at his ears as he allured were and but if his knave kneel that shall his cap bring he loureth on him and asketh him who taught him courtesy the whole poem is full of allusions to the manner of life of the clergy their ill-gotten wealth and the neglect of their duties in another place he says bishops and bachelors both masters and doctors that have cure under christ and crowning in token and sign that they should shrive their parishioners preach and pray for them and the poor faith live in london in lent and other times some serve the king and his silver talon in chequer and in chancery in an extravagant age the clergy were especially marked by their wild and foolish extravagance their love for fine clothes for the chase for show and pageantry of all kinds even the mendicant orders partook of this and the franciscan friars who had pledged themselves to the most absolute poverty amassed wealth and only obeyed the dictates of their order by abstaining from all labour as the political ballad of the time says full wisely do they preach and say but as they preach nothing do they and even of their preaching langland says i find these friars all the four orders preach to the people for profit of themselves and glossed the gospel as them good liked 
the church seemed to have lost all its early simplicity and to have departed entirely from the teaching of the apostles the clergy absorbed all the chief offices of state this had come about naturally from the fact that till now they had been the only educated body in the state and so they only had been fit to transact its business but now learning had become more general a new class that of the lawyers was springing up and men were no longer willing to see everything in the hands of the clergy the great opponent of their power was john of gaunt duke of lancaster the king's third son he was an ambitious and unscrupulous man and his aim was to get the entire control of affairs during the last years of edward the third's reign his opposition to the clergy sprung only from his own personal ambition he wished to exclude the clergy from the offices of the state that he might fill them with his own creatures the power of the commons was as hateful in his eyes as the power of the clergy he put himself at the head of a reactionary body of great barons who wished to bring back the old order of things and restore the power of their own class with john of gaunt was united a man of a very different stamp this was john wycliffe who by his learning had risen into importance in the university of oxford he had shown himself an eager student well versed in logic and metaphysics deeply learned in theology and delighting in the mathematical and natural sciences the university had not been slow to recognize his distinction he had been made fellow of merton then the leading college afterwards he was master of balliol hall and lastly he had been made warden of canterbury hall the new college founded by simon islip archbishop of canterbury he was first called into political prominence in thirteen sixty six when edward the third called upon him to answer the demand made by pope urban the sixth for the homage of england and the tribute promised by king john in his answer whilst calling himself the humble and obedient son of the roman church he clearly showed how determined he was to take the national side and resist papal encroachments he was equally opposed to the ambition and wealth of the clergy and this was the cause of his connection with john of gaunt it is impossible to believe that there can have been any real sympathy between the two men wycliffe the zealous student and austere reformer and john of gaunt the complete man of the world corrupt in his life narrow and unscrupulous in his policy absorbed in selfish ambition they had however this in common that each wished to destroy the power of the clergy though from very different motives john of gaunt wished to humiliate the church wycliffe wished to purify it john of gaunt resented the official arrogance of the bishops and their large share of temporal power wycliffe hoped to restore the long-lost apostolic purity of the church it was in the parliament of thirteen seventy one that the first great blow at the power of the clergy was struck the duke of lancaster was away in aquitaine but we cannot doubt that parliament was inspired by his influence when it petitioned the king that only secular men might be employed in his court and household chief amongst the clergy in high office at that time was william of wickham bishop of winchester the lord high chancellor he had first become important as the king's surveyor and architect at windsor here the king had undertaken important and extensive works for the improvement and extension of the castle 
Wickham had a strong natural taste for architecture and seems moreover to have been a wise and practical man of business. He became the king's chaplain, his principal secretary, and the keeper of the privy seal. In 1367 he was elevated to the see of Winchester and appointed Lord Chancellor. He was a most liberal man and had the interests of the people sincerely at heart. To posterity he is chiefly known by his munificence in founding Winchester School and New College at Oxford, two foundations which have greatly promoted the cause of learning. He seems in all cases to have used his power and his wealth for the public good. But John of Gaunt and his party hated him on account of his wealth and position, whilst in Wycliffe's eyes he was not spiritual enough for a bishop. Wycliffe thought that no ecclesiastic ought to hold office or busy himself in secular affairs. He no doubt alludes to Wickham when he says bitterly, benefices, instead of being bestowed on poor clerks, are heaped on one wise in building castles or in worldly business. It was against Wickham that the petition of Parliament against giving office to ecclesiastics was chiefly directed. He was forced to resign the seals, the other ecclesiastics in office had to give up their posts, and laymen, creatures of John of Gaunt, were appointed to fill them. Sir Richard Lescroop was appointed treasurer, and Sir Robert Thorpe Lord Chancellor. The same Parliament also petitioned the King about the unsatisfactory state of the Navy, and granted a subsidy for putting it into a proper condition, but no great expedition was planned to reconquer the lost possessions in France. The war went on in a desultory way, and nothing particular was gained on either side. The commons were growing tired of paying for it. They further showed their animosity to the clergy by decreeing that the tax which was to be levied to provide the subsidy voted for the king was to be raised also from all those lands which had passed into the hands of the clergy before the twentieth year of Edward I. The clergy met together in convocation in 1373 to consider what course they should take under these circumstances. They met at St. Paul's, where Whittlesey, Archbishop of Canterbury, presided. He was too weak both in mind and body to take an important part in the proceedings. He summoned all his strength to preach the opening sermon, after which he sunk down exhausted. Simon Sudbury, Bishop of London, a man of the Duke of Lancaster's party, succeeded him as president of convocation the conduct of the clergy was marked by moderation they had no wish to resist obstinately the demands of the commons but they complained that they already had to tax themselves heavily to provide subsidies for the king and to meet the demands of the pope they said that they would willingly give more to the king if he would free them from the exactions of the pope the king caused an embassy to be sent to the pope stating the grievances of the clergy, but the pope would do nothing but promise to send ambassadors to a congress to be held at some future time. The Duke of Lancaster's party was now in complete possession of all power in the kingdom. It remained to be seen how far they would be able to win the confidence of the people. In the conduct of the war they had been by no means successful. The duke himself had not mended matters by marrying Constance, daughter of Pedro the Cruel, and assuming in her right the title of King of Castile. This only threw Henry of Trastamara more than ever on the side of France. In 1372 the Earl of Pembroke was sent with an English fleet to assist the Duke of Lancaster. 
but now the folly of having turned spain into a bitter enemy became apparent the english fleet was intercepted by a spanish fleet and completely defeated pembroke himself was taken prisoner and the english naval power received a blow from which it took long to recover disaster followed disaster in aquitaine rochelle was seized by the french Tuar, one of the last places of importance remaining to the english was besieged and hard pressed when news of all these misfortunes reached edward the third he was roused from his lethargy and determined to make one last effort to recover what he had lost a fleet was equipped in which edward himself and even the black prince whose health was now somewhat better embarked but the fleet never reached france it was beaten about by contrary winds for some weeks and at last was obliged to return to england there was now nothing to be done except to ask for a truce in thirteen seventy four the duke of lancaster returned to england leaving all the english possessions except bordeaux and bayonne in the hands of the french it was determined that a general congress should be held at bruges to discuss terms of peace with france to this congress the pope and edward the third were also to send commissioners to discuss the points at issue between england and the papacy john of gaunt was chief amongst the english ambassadors who went to bruges to try and arrange a peace john wycliffe went as one of the ecclesiastical commissioners of whom the bishop of bangor was head there were great difficulties in the way of any peace between england and france the french wished edward to give up calais but the english would not hear of this it was only the earnest endeavours of the pope gregory the eleventh a sincere lover of peace which finally brought about a truce to last until june thirteen seventy six meanwhile the ecclesiastical commissioners were also very busy and all waited eagerly to see the result of this conference if wycliffe had allowed himself to hope that it would lead to any reform in the church he must have been bitterly disappointed we do not know what part he took in it but he must have soon seen with disgust that his fellow-commissioners had no desire for reform and that the king himself was not more zealous than they in september six lengthy bulls arrived in england from the pope stating the conclusions arrived at by the conference these bulls showed that nothing really had been agreed upon the pope made no promises for the future but only arranged some informalities in the past it seemed as if the king and the pope had come to an agreement purely for their own personal advantage each was really to do pretty much as he liked and the great questions which involved the interests of the church and the nation were left untouched End of section eighteen